They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. We read that far in God's holy word. The disciples showed in the previous passage by their attempt to drive out a demon without praying that they have completely misunderstood the values of the kingdom of God. They thought that they themselves were great enough to overpower a demon in their own strength. So, Here, Jesus patiently, again, offered a further lesson about how the values of the kingdom are opposite to what they would naturally expect. Basically, you could say it this way, Jesus trained his disciples how to be great. There's three simple steps. Die to self, serve others, and care for little people. Not so simple to live out. First, die to self. Here in verse 30, Jesus and his 12 disciples were told geographically, passed through Galilee. Now you remember that Galilee was a place where Jesus was well known. So you would expect that crowds would immediately gather around Jesus, wanting a loved one to be healed, perhaps some teaching, but mostly the miracles. Where are the crowds? Why did crowds not gather? It was because, in verse 30, we're told that Jesus himself did not want anyone to know that he was passing through Galilee because Jesus was focused on the 12 disciples. In fact, verse 31 informed us that Jesus was teaching not the crowds, but his disciples. Jesus is teaching his disciples. His focus now is on his disciples. What did Jesus need to teach his disciples? How to be great in the kingdom. It's the second time that Jesus is telling them about him being killed. The first time was in chapter 8, 31, saying he must be killed. Remember that? That was the time that Peter responded on behalf of the disciples and rebuked Jesus. And Jesus appropriately rebuked Peter back and called him nothing less than Satan. So with that in mind, you remember, here in chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus taught a second time the need for Jesus to be killed. And the uh, turn of phrase that Jesus used this time was a play on words you can actually see in English here in verse 31. Son of man, hands of men. Man, men. You see that? It's ironic, especially the way that the phrase son of man is used in the Bible used in the book of Daniel. Listen to how the term son of man 
is used in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Does that sound like one who would naturally come under the hands of men? Son of man, under the hands of men. How will one with such power end up arrested by men? And the key word is in verse 31, delivered. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, give me a moment to express how this very same word is used through the Gospel of Mark in, in several ways. First, back in Mark 1.15, John the Baptist was arrested, but it's the same Greek word for delivered here. In Mark 3.19, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. It's the same Greek word here for delivered. It's as if Judas was delivering Jesus over, you see. In Mark 10, verse 33, Jesus will be delivered over. Same Greek word. And what Judas later would do to Jesus in chapter 14 in seven instances in one chapter. I'll give you the verses in Mark 14, verses 10, 11, 18, 21, 41, 42, and 44. Each time translated with our English word betrayed, Yet each time Mark chose this same Greek word for delivered, that Judas delivered Jesus over. In Mark 15, 1, the Sanhedrin bound Jesus and delivered him over to Pilate, same Greek word. In Mark 15, 10, Pilate repeated that it was the chief priest who had delivered Jesus up. Again, same Greek word. And finally, one more time, in Mark 15, 15, near the end of the Gospel of Mark, it was Pilate who after scourging Jesus also delivered him to be crucified with the same Greek word. To deliver Jesus over is how the Son of Man came under the hands of men. And Jesus is announcing this to his disciples a second time because it's so important for them to grasp. And so we see this disciple's response then in verse 32. Back to our study of Mark 9, verse 32. After this blunt and clear statement about Jesus being killed and then rising again from the dead. The resurrection is certainly listed there. But we are told, sadly, in verse 32, two things about the disciples. Number one, they did not understand. And number two, they were afraid to ask Jesus. Why were the disciples now afraid to ask Jesus what he meant? They were not shy, and there are instances very recently of how they did ask Jesus what he meant. It's because they were themselves afraid to die. Because their leader Jesus is talking about being killed and they are literally followers of Jesus. He's their rabbi. They're his disciples. They're his students. They're following him in life and in words. He's going to be killed. They could already early on now sense that they were being summoned eventually to share his fate. So the message of the cross, at this early stage, was becoming the stumbling point for them. The same disciples who tried to cast out a demon without praying were now trying to understand without asking. And trying to follow a Savior committed to being killed 
without the disciples themselves being committed to dying to themselves. They were wanting to be great without following step one toward kingdom greatness. Get yourself out of the way. Die to self. Even while they remain this sort of sinner, Jesus is openly discussing his willingness and plan to die for them. Jesus is willing to die to himself. He's willing to be killed for them. He's willing to be, as the Son of Man, delivered over into the hands of men to crucifixion for them. They're not following. They're not asking. They're not understanding. Point one, dying to self, is how to be great. Disciples are not doing it. Second, Moving on to our second point, verses 33 to 35, put in two words, serve others. Now, while the eyes of Jesus were fixed on his own martyrdom, the disciples were preoccupied with the question of their own status. While Jesus is repeatedly speaking to them about rejection and death, the disciples were apparently thinking of a continuing influential governmental movement in which Jesus would be the leader and they, as his closest inner circle, would rise to power and recognition in that movement. Those closest to Jesus, you see, would, in their minds, be most likely to hold cabinet positions, positions of influence and power within the coming reign of Jesus as the new king. Listen to the presentation here by Mark in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, you need to know that being in the house, as happened a few times in these recent chapters, being in the house is an indicator, Mark is telling us, of the absence of the crowds, the place and time in which it's safe and private for the disciples to ask their rabbi questions that only disciples get to ask, And there's no embarrassment. They would be able to ask and get the answers. But since the disciples were here in verse 34, silent, too proud on the one hand, too fearful on the other hand to ask him questions, the rabbi, being the best teacher ever, literally, started by asking the questions. But before we get to Jesus' question, just imagine their silence. What were you discussing on the way? Can you feel it? The, the pressure of the moment? You have 12 men looking at the floor, perhaps. Glance up, and Jesus is looking right at you. One by one, maybe. We don't know how long this happened, but you get the picture. Mark is presenting it to us because Mark well remembers. Why? He reveals next. They were silent for, on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. (laughs) Mark reveals it to us. That's what really was going on. And, of course, the rabbi is picking that in order to draw them out. Jesus had been talking about being rejected violently and fatally. God's kingship and his kingdom will come through defeat, not through victory. God's kingdom comes through the king being killed, not through the king being crowned and seated on the throne and naming his 
best, closest leaders. The process of Jesus retraining his disciples must continue here. What does a good teacher do when the class is behind? The good teacher teaches from where the class is to where the class needs to be. So here Mark shows that's exactly what Jesus the professor did next. For silent disciples, when a lesser teacher might have quit, Jesus, their rabbi, had an immediate tutoring session. Verse 35 says, And Jesus sat down and called the twelve. Now, don't miss this, because in this very moment, I'm standing, you're seated. So we miss the, the official formal aspect of this teaching. The vocabulary chosen here by Mark for the location of the event, the choreography, things such as in the house, the rabbi seated, officially summoning the disciples and naming them the twelve, even that phrase, all show this lesson is a deliberate, even formal, piece of instruction chosen specially by the rabbi for this occasion because of the need. And Jesus said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Why would he say this? Because they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. you imagine the three who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration? They're probably saying, well, you know, guys, it's one of us. And knowing Peter, as we sort of know Peter through the scriptures, we think that Peter could very well have said, well, out of the three of us, it's got to be me. And the sons of thunder probably responded as sons of thunder would do, loudly saying, how dare you, Peter? And along those lines, the other disciples would say, just because you went up the mountain doesn't mean anything. We're down here doing the work. And on and on it goes. And Jesus is presenting to them If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be great, you have to be a great servant. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the greatest servant of all. It's tough to imagine in this context of what we studied in chapter 8 and 9, a more inappropriate question to discuss on the way than what the disciples had been discussing on the way. Who's the greatest? If our leader is talking about being killed, I guess it's going to fall to one of us, right? He's obviously the greatest. They're thinking he's going to be killed, and then who's next in line? It's so inappropriate, and Jesus so patiently teaches what greatness is. You have to serve others. It brings us to our third point. More pointedly, Jesus now wisely presents a child as a teaching aid. Uh, They're in the house, it's Capernaum, it it could very well be Peter's house, it could very well be Peter's son or daughter. But we don't know those things, it's simply a child who was in the area. And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, we're told in verse 36, and taking him, the child, in his arms with a loving hug, Right there in the lesson with the 12, he said to them, the point, though, is the status of the child, not any character traits typical of children. The lesson for us, don't miss this, is the conventional value scale of assigning importance to an unimportant person. This isn't about children's ministry. This isn't specific to that child. It's a 
an object lesson, it's a metaphor, it is a clear picture illustrating the people who are neglected, the people who are hidden. And so in verse 37, he then says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That's the end of our passage. The idea here then is a hidden representation. It takes kingdom thinking to understand that the little people don't represent themselves. They represent someone else. Whom do they represent? They represent whoever sent them. Just as God the Father sent Jesus, the Son of God, and whoever receives Jesus receives God the Father, in the same manner, whoever receives a child coming in the name of Jesus receives Jesus. As you receive the child in the name of Jesus, you're receiving Jesus himself. This, in a moment, Jesus presents as a surefire test for how the disciples understand, how we understand, the kingdom of God. How we treat the littlest person, how we treat the most neglected person, how we treat the smallest person. It's only when we've learned to relate well to those who have no standing in our society that we've learned to welcome Christ into our lives and operate with lives governed by the values of his kingdom. Only then could we say we're actually walking with God. We are to welcome all people without thought of their accomplishments, their influence, their fame, or their gifts, but simply because they're made in the image of God and redeemed, if they're redeemed. The Apostle James spelled this out a little further. He fleshed it out in James 2, verses 1 to 4. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, sit here in in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James uh, James 2, 1 to 4. The point of Jesus is... The point of James there that we're called to receive others without being conscious of their status. We are to love and accept everyone in the name of Christ. That is the third part of three simple steps of how to be great. Die to self, serve others, and care for little people. My concluding applications ought not to be a surprise to you. They're the same three points of the sermon. Number one, die to ourselves. We are worse than we think. It was helpful to have a hymn of repentance before we study this, otherwise we would be judging and condemning the disciples thinking that we're better. We're not. The story illustrates the problem with our hearts. We need a Savior to die for us, not simply one to pull us aside and correct us a bit. We are so bad at this. Jesus didn't just come to teach us or to preach messages that are written down by our disciples and later we study or for us to read about the miracles that he worked for us to review and be amazed by. Jesus came to make satisfaction to the holy 
God for our wrongdoing. The only way to do that is through his blood and the suffering on the cross. And he rose again, which is our only source of hope. Dying to ourselves is crucial in remembering the central element of the cross. The grand object that Jesus is repeatedly bringing his disciples back around to is the same grand object that demands our focus and our study of the gospel of Mark, Christ's death on Calvary for us. Dying to that part of ourselves that wants to minimize this or graduate from this or brush it aside is essential. We have got to keep the cross of Christ central. Walking with God, being a Christian, being religious, attending a worship service, acting like we're interested in the things of God has got to be all about the cross to save us from our sinful selves, to save us from a just, fiery judgment and the never-ending wrath of God. If you want to be great, the first step is to camp out here and stay here permanently in the full, ongoing recognition of our dreadful sin status requiring the suffering servant. We always keep in mind the twin truths that his resurrection secures our glorious status in the realm of the risen and reigning Son of Man. He died and rose, the twin truths. Paul expresses the heart cry of each of us in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. Because Jesus died for me, I'm dead. I no longer live. Why am I still here? Christ. That's the only purpose for my life at all. Christ. Does it sound like a person who's following Christ? This is the person who is dead to self. We need to get there. Anything I am, anything I say, anything I do is all the Son of God. I only live by faith in him. I have no agenda. I have no ambition. I'm not climbing, not maneuvering, not searching. I'm not waiting for my 15 minutes of fame and attention. I don't want it. For me to live is Christ. Five more minutes, 50 more years, whatever he has for me, it's Christ, Christ, Christ. There is no self. Myself is dead. I'm a worm. I believe that. I deserve death, but Christ has given me life and everything else. My whole life is about Christ. Dying to ourselves is number one step if you want to be great. There's two more if you're interested. (laughs) Serving others. Look how diametrically opposed this is to the world. The world's idea of greatness is trampling on others in order to get higher. To rule over others to get what you want. Christ's idea for how to be great is to serve others. It's the other directions, diametrically opposed. This is a non-negotiable aspect of following Christ. We must serve others. It's not some add-on package. It's not some 
a bonus or appendix that you could do if you decided to, if you want to be a super Christian. No, we have to keep serving Christ. Let me illustrate. A Spanish philosopher tells about a Roman aqueduct at Segovia in his native Spain. It was built in 109 A.D. For 1,800 years, it carried cool water from the mountains down to the hot and thirsty city. Generations of people drank from its flow. Then came a generation recently who said, this aqueduct is such a great marvel that it ought to be preserved for our children as a museum piece. We're going to relieve it of its centuries-long labor of carrying water. So they installed modern iron pipes, and they wanted to take this and build a museum around it. So they gave the ancient bricks and mortar a reverent rest. And they were surprised how soon the aqueduct fell apart. The sun beating on the dry mortar caused it to absolutely crumble. The bricks and stones sagged and threatened to fall. What ages of service could not destroy idleness disintegrated. We must serve. We never retire. We don't take breaks from service. It's in us. It's who Christ made us to be. You want to be great, die to self, serve others. There's one more, care for little people. It seems like Jesus touched Mark. Mark is our, our author who says immediately, 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 immediately. He, he's moving on in his, in his gospel, and he pauses here to describe this. Jesus taught Mark in this event in a way that Mark never forgot. Jesus put a little child in the middle of them, hugged him, and made a lesson out of it. Mark became a changed man. The world sees the path of greatness as crown and fame and wealth, and they ignore the little people. The Christian sees the path of greatness as devoting ourselves to Christ and in him devoting ourselves to the weakest and most neglected of people. We devote our lives to misfits, the old man that no one cares for, the annoying woman, the homeless, the mentally impaired, the physically disabled, the elderly, the victims of mistreatment, and any other category I haven't yet described of people who are on the outs. We serve neglected people not because of their worth, not because we are so awesome, but because of the worth of Jesus Christ. In serving them, we're serving him. As Matthew spells out famously in Matthew 25, if you serve this one, you've served me. If you don't serve this one, you've not served me. We care for these people in Jesus' name, as he says here. In doing that, we're obeying him. In doing that, we're receiving God the Father and God the Son. So there's three steps. Die to self, serve others, care for little people. They're clear steps, but they're not easy. In fact, these three steps are so difficult. See previous lesson. Verses 14 to 29, we found the lesson is that we constantly need the power of Christ. You can't do this. You need Christ. If you pause before I close and look around in your life, 
the people who are living this way are the truly great people in your life. You know that. In 1 John 4, 11, we read the emphasis and repetition of what we've seen tonight. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let me add one thing about the tone. To live like this has a tone of gladness around it. Think of Philippians 2, how the chapter unfolds, how Jesus emptied himself and then God exalted him. We have the death and resurrection presented, right? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But then, within that same chapter, just a few verses later, now in verses 17 and 18 of Philippians 2, it shows the tone of gladness. Listen, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Listen, likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So my point there is simply add, not only these three steps towards greatness, but the tone is one of gladness in serving Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven,